2: And welcome to the edition podcast from the Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, the Spectator's executive editor,
3: and I'm William Moore, the Spectator's features editor.
2: On this week's episode, we'll be looking at whether it's time for Britain to leave the European Court of Human Rights. We'll be discussing if dynamic pricing is the future, and we'll be asking whether a Guardian blind date really is the best way to find love. First
3: up. Lord Sumption makes the case for leaving the ECHR as the cover for the magazine this week. He says that the UK has strong courts and can pass judgment on human rights by itself. He joins us now alongside Dr. Joel Grogan, legal academic and head of research at UK in a changing Europe. Joel, before we jump into Lord Sumption's case, could you take us through what the European Court of Human Rights is and who it seeks to protect?
4: Certainly. Uh, As a first introduction, the European Court of Human Rights is the international court which upholds the European Convention on Human Rights. So the European Convention on Human Rights is an international human rights treaty that protects the rights of everyone in the 46 states that are part of the Council of Europe. I should say we should not confuse this with the European Union, which is a different body of members, but the European Court of Human Rights is tasked with hearing cases that uh, go up from member states of the Council of Europe, so from those 46 countries, and they decide whether or not rights have been violated. The court is made up of one judge that is elected from every member state of the Council of Europe. And, Lord
2: Sumption, you say in your piece that the Convention has transformed from a noble body of truly fundamental principles into something at once intrusive and banal. Can you set out the case, as you do in the magazine, against the European Court of Human Rights?
5: Well, I don't have a problem about the text of the Convention. Uh, But the, the point is that the text of the Convention is the only thing that the state parties have actually agreed. It's therefore quite important that the court which is charged with applying and interpreting the Convention, uh, should actually uh, have a careful regard to the text and to other things that are necessarily implicit in the text. Uh, This is what the Strasbourg Court does not do. In 1978, the Strasbourg Court, in a case called Tyra, articulated a doctrine which it had been applying for a number of years, which it calls the Living Instrument Doctrine. This is basically a doctrine which authorises it uh, to update, as it puts it, the Convention, uh, so as to devise new, some ancillary rights, which are not in the Convention, some of which were actually rejected at the time when the Convention was negotiated. This has enabled the Strasbourg Court essentially to free itself from the text of the Convention and to roam widely over the whole realm of at social policy. The notion behind, in particular, Article 8, which protects privacy and family life, now, the notion that the Strasbourg Court has developed in relation to Article 8 is that it applies to anything which potentially interferes with the free development of human personality and with the autonomy of individuals. Well, all laws to some extent do that, They require people to behave in a way that they wouldn't necessarily behave voluntarily. And this has been the basis uh, on which the Human Rights Convention uh, and Article 8 in particular have enabled the court to deal with a simply enormous range of things which were never envisaged as being part of it. This is a clause which was designed to deal with the surveillance state in despotic regimes like Nazi Germany or fascist Italy. It's been applied to illegitimacy of children, to policing techniques at public demonstrations, uh, to security of tenure in uh, public accommodation, to a mass of other things with absolutely nothing to do with the original purpose of Article 8. Now, some of these decisions, I think a lot of people would applaud. Some of them I would applaud. But the real question is not, do we like this or that decision of the Strasbourg court? The real question is, how are we to make law in a democracy? And the problem is that the international nature of the Strasbourg court's jurisdiction means that the member states of the Council of Europe have no input whatever into what it does. If you have a national framework of human rights protection, and I certainly am not suggesting that we should jettison human rights protection domestically. But the critical difference is that a national scheme of human rights protection, when things go wrong, and courts do sometimes get it wrong, both internationally and domestically, when things go wrong, you can amend the law legislatively. Whereas if things go wrong in Strasbourg, and some of them have gone spectacularly wrong, there is absolutely nothing that you can do about it. The uh, Strasbourg court's decisions, for example, have played havoc with the operation of British and other European peacekeeping forces in places like Iran, and Iraq, sorry, and Afghanistan. Uh, there's nothing that we can do about that. We have managed to devise domestically a way out of some of the more extreme manifestations of applying the Human Rights Convention in places domin- the Taliban-dominated areas of Afghanistan. But the problem is basically still there and there's nothing we can do about it.
3: Joel, if the UK were hypothetically to leave the ECHR, what would some of the practicalities of a withdrawal look like? I wonder if you could take our listeners through that.
4: Certainly. There are two steps that would have to be taken uh, domestically and then internationally for the UK to withdraw from the ECHR. The first step domestically would be for the UK to repeal the Human Rights Act. Uh, This is the piece of legislation that gives force uh, to the ECHR in the UK. I think from a political perspective too, in light of all of the Brexit caseload, it could be important also in democratic terms for Parliament to very explicitly express its will to withdraw from the ECHR. Domestically, too, we would have to uh, reform a lot of devolved legislation, which very explicitly refers and gives duties to the devolved legislatures in Scotland, in Wales and Northern Ireland to pay attention to the ECHR. What I would say on that is there are some complications as uh, the Scottish and Welsh governments have already indicated. They think that the Sewell Convention would apply and they've also indicated that they would not give consent for the UK government to take away the ECHR. But domestically, it would be passing an Act of Parliament to repeal the HRA. Then at an international level, it's actually even more straightforward. The UK government would simply need to Give notification to the Council of Europe of its intention to withdraw. The only condition there is six months' notice. That is the, the two legal steps.
5: Um, I broadly agree with much of that, uh, but I think it's important not to exaggerate the uh, problem with the devolution, div- with the devolved administrations. The principal problem res- uh, relates to Northern Ireland. The Good Friday Agreement specifically requires uh, that the uh, re- rights under the convention should be made available in Northern Ireland, and therefore uh, it seems to me that any withdrawal would have to uh, would have to leave Northern Ireland in the convention system unless an amendment could be negotiated with the Irish Government, something which I think is most unlikely to happen. So I see that there's a problem there. As far as Scotland and Wales are concerned, the Sewell Convention, as the uh, Supreme Court confirmed in Gina Miller number one, is not a legally binding convention, uh, so that they, as a matter of law, the Scots and the Welsh do not have a veto. There are certainly provisions that would need to be amended. Uh, in the legislation creating the devolved administration and they would be that would be done in exactly the same way as it was done when we left the EU amendments were made to the Scotland Act for example which took the problem out uh, the Scots did not like it uh, but ultimately sovereignty rests with the uh, with the parliament uh, of the of the with the Westminster parliament i should say that i recognise that my position Uh, in relation to the European Court of Human Rights is a minority position. It's a minority position in public opinion. It's a minority position in Parliament. It's a minority position even within the Conservative Party. Um, But that isn't going to stop me pointing out that adhering to the Human Rights Convention has a significant cost in terms of our ability to control our own legal system
2: And how how would you respond to critics who argue that leaving the ECHR could potentially weaken the UK's commitment to human rights?
5: I don't see why it should, because I certainly would not be in favour of withdrawing from the Convention unless it was replaced by something that was pretty well identical except for the jurisdiction of the Strasbourg Court. Uh, I've made that perfectly clear in my article. I think that we do have to protect human rights. I think we're perfectly capable of doing it domestically. Uh, Our courts are quite used to holding governments to account in that, as well as in many other respects. And the people who say we will be putting ourselves uh, in the same position as Russia or Belarus are, uh, in my view, seriously mistaken. For the simple reason that Russia and Belarus are not democracies and do not have independent courts. Uh, We are both a democracy and have independent courts. And I have every confidence in their ability to uphold human rights domestically.
3: And Joël, would you agree with that, that, that a withdrawal from the ECHR would not necessarily weaken any given country's commitment to human rights?
4: I would first like to echo Lord Sumption's points on raising the legal consequences to leaving the ECHR beyond simply the legal steps to do so. So Lord Sumption already mentioned the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Um, It is a condition of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement that the ECHR, and specifically direct access to the European Court of Human Rights, applies in Northern Ireland. It would be very difficult, um, very difficult politically, for any kind of reopening of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement to be renegotiated. I think that would be a very difficult position, and that's not controversial to to say. The second legal consequence that we should also be aware of is the trade and cooperation agreement with the EU, which uh, does emphasize respect for human rights as an essential agreement or essential element, Although, of course, it's incredibly unlikely, if not impossible, that the EU would suspend or terminate any substantive part of the trading relationship that we now have based on withdrawal from the ECHR. However, the EU has very explicitly stated that if the UK withdraws from the ECHR, that it will terminate the element or the part of the agreement that deals with legal cooperation on criminal matters. Now, what that means practically is that the EU member states are unlikely to recognize extradition requests for criminal suspects from uh, EU member states. That's probably the real legal consequence in EU terms beyond violating the Belfast Good Friday agreements that we have to to look to. Beyond that, um, I would absolutely echo Lord Sumption uh, that if we are considering withdrawal from the ECHR, We'd have to consider what that means in terms of domestic human rights protections and whether or not that would mean a British Bill of Rights and what that could look like. Because if we withdraw from the ECHR without a replacement, we would be left without a codified and legally binding document in the same way. So one of the political discussions that would have to be had is whether or not or how to replace the ECHR domestically. I know certainly, and this is probably beyond my purview and area of expertise, there's a wider conversation to be had about the very, very important role that the UK plays in international human rights protection as uh, not only an advocate of an international system based on norms and instruments and agreements, and what it would be as a statement for the UK to withdraw from the ECHR, especially when just looking at the statistics, we have probably one of the best human rights record in the ECHR. Last year of the 1,100 judgments, only four considered the UK and only two violations were found. This is one of the lowest in Europe. We also on average per capita have the lowest number of applications to the ECHR. So one of the conversations that we can have is, well, what should it mean domestically for us replacing it? And what should it mean internationally for our reputation? But purely in terms of legal consequences, we can just focus on how to replace exactly as Lord Sumption says and how we can consider international ramifications just for those legal consequences that we know of.
5: Well, precisely because we have an outstanding reputation for protecting human rights, I see no reason why our influence should be, in the human rights area should be diminished in any way. We would continue to be prominent champions of the defense of human rights. We would simply have emancipated ourselves from the jurisdiction of the Strasbourg court. That seems to me to be a much less consequential act. I don't agree with all that Joel has said about international cooperation. Some aspects of international cooperation are governed by EU law and it is possible that uh, that would be suspended, although one needs to bear in mind that uh, uh, continental countries uh, expect extradition from us, as well as giving extradition to us, and I don't think it necessarily follows. Mm. Uh, But in fact, in any case, extradition is not governed by EU law. Extradition is governed by the domestic laws of different individual states. Uh, And I see no reason to suppose that all of those are going to terminate extradition treaties which are regarded as being of mutual benefit. Other aspects of international cooperation are less certain, that I accept.
2: Well, thank you both for joining.
3: Thank you. Lord Thank you, Joelle.
2: Next, in this week's magazine, Rory Sutherland takes a look at the rise of dynamic pricing, a new trend where prices can surge at peak times, a phenomenon which has now made its way into pubs. But he says that it's not necessarily the cost that matters, but the way it's framed. He joins us now alongside Times business columnist, Ryan Bourne. So, Rory, can you start by giving listeners a bit of background on flexible or, as it's sometimes known, surge pricing? How long has it been written into our experiences as consumers?
1: Uh, It's interesting because, obviously, I mean, to some extent, prices have always uh, changed to reflect supply and demand. Uh, What's slightly unusual is perhaps making the whole thing explicit and planned. And it's probably fair to say that the airline industry pioneered it. And and now, to be absolutely honest, is, is that true? Because, you know, hotels, for example, in ski resorts would always practice seasonal pricing. So there was always, you know, and Likewise, I don't think there was ever a time where you paid as much for a villa in Ibiza in kind of January as you would have done in August. But this business where, for example, pubs, taxis and so forth, I mean, the the phrase surge pricing comes from Uber, is comparatively recent. And it's also fair to say that one of the reasons it probably took time to be introduced was that it took time for consumers to accept it. Now, if we go back probably to the uh, early 19th century, uh, there was a different form of flexible pricing or price discrimination, as economists would probably call it, which is that if you turned up in a shop and you looked particularly rich, people would quote you a larger price for a chocolate bar than they would if you looked comparatively penurious. And Interestingly, it was the Quakers who started printing, Cadbury I think specifically, started printing the recommended retail price on the packaging. And the reason the Quakers did it uh, was effectively because they thought it was just plain dealing, to use the Quaker phrase. What was then discovered is consumers really liked it, because consumers liked the thought that they were paying the same as everybody else. That there was one price and you either paid it or you didn't, and it wasn't dependent on the Uh, seller's whim or indeed interpretation of your own wealth uh, in terms of how much you might pay. And I think it's right that they like it because, you know, where where the things end, I mean, you have potentially the technology in supermarkets now to follow people around the store, use what you know about them from their loyalty card data to actually vary prices in real time specific to the individual. And people really don't like that. So Amazon got into a lot of trouble, for example, because um, it was revealed that people who were new to the Amazon site were quoted lower prices than people who are regular Amazon customers. And people immediately thought that was unfair. A similar one, one of the earlier chief executives of Coca-Cola more or less had to resign because he casually mentioned the possibility that you could ramp up the prices of a Coke from a Coke machine in hotter weather. Now, interestingly, nobody minds happy hour in a pub, okay? Nobody would have minded if Amazon said, if you're, you know, save 25% off your first purchase at Amazon, and they'd sent out vouchers. We regard that as being transparent and acceptable, but there is an assumption that the price quoted is the price available to everybody. Basically true of EasyJet, as far as I know. Okay, I don't think when I go onto the EasyJet side, they go, ooh, Sutherland's a bit of a speedy boarding fiend. You know, he looks like he's got a bit of cash. I'll ramp up the price for all the seats across the board. And we would be really, really upset if that happened. And so part of the important thing about this is that in some ways, the EasyJets and Ryanair's of this world came up with a formula which people accept in, which is the sooner you pay, the, the sooner you buy, the less you pay.
3: Ryan, if I could um, bring you in, into this discussion, I wonder... What your opinion is about how we reach an understanding, I suppose, uh, of what a fair price is, uh, and I wonder what your thoughts are on flexible pricing. Is it a boon for consumers or a blight upon them?
6: Yeah, well, I, I think Rory is absolutely right. And His piece was brilliant on this. That people do go into any given transaction with a sort of heuristic and expectation of the amount that they're expected to pay, and then when they see the price that's uh, put in front of them, whether that's determined dynamically or statically. They kind of judge that against their expectations. And um, so Rory is absolutely right that individual companies have brands to protect. protect. When we go into like McDonald's or KFC or whatever, we don't expect that we're going to be paying more if we go at lunchtime or dinnertime. And we kind of accept that there might be longer lines at that time. So we have to wait longer uh, to get our food. Now, those companies have made that judgment that um, it's better for their long term profitability to keep uniform pricing over that period it protects their brand it stops consumers having to walk in realize that the price is too high then walk out and then walk to somewhere else to get their lunch so you know i kind of accept all that i think that there are two kind of clear types of market though where dynamic pricing can have really big benefits uh to consumers and there's already some case studies on this i completely agree by the way i, I think we're we're pretty much on on board with each other but i mean the the two areas where i think it can really help is First of all, uh, two-sided platforms where you have consumers and suppliers operating at the same time. Uh, so Uber is the quintessential example of this, but one could imagine lots of delivery services and, and potentially other services in, in, the, in the longer run. So when you have a demand surge on a two-sided platform and you allow the price to increase, that doesn't just then kind of ration the available existing supply according to who's willing to pay the price, but it actually provides an incentive for other people to enter the platform. We have lots and lots of uh, evidence with Uber, for example, that you know it doesn't just help to allocate existing taxis to people willing to pay more in particular periods, but it actually does encourage drivers who are already on the road to stay on the road for longer. So it helps keep those wait times
1: down lower than perhaps a uniform price tag. Actually, one problem with the NHS is that it can't do this. And my father, who's you know fairly stingy and in his nineties, goes, "I love the NHS, but why can't I just pay thirty quid for a home visit?" And you know, and there's no incentive for any doctor effectively to widen or improve access to what they offer, precisely because of the absence of that kind of two-way two-way model. I agree.
6: Well, actually, I have a good example of that, Rory. So, uh, when I was living back in the UK, one time I had a you know, a minor skin rash appear on my face. I wanted to see a dermatologist. So um, I got referred to a dermatologist on the NHS in a hospital. And they said to me, well, you know, it'd be three months before you can get an appointment. And I said, really? Three months? You know, I've got to have this on my face for potentially for three months. And the, they said, well, or you could, um, you know, uh, the, the doctor does also do private appointments. So I said, okay, well, how much would that be? And he said, well, um, £200 and I'll see you tomorrow morning at 9am.
4: <laughs> of course.
6: <laughs> so... Kind of, that's a good example of what we're talking about. I mean, I think the other the other one which is a bit more controversial, with Ticketmaster in particular, the, the Bruce Springsteen was selling um uh, tickets to his his gigs out here in the US fairly recently and they had a, a full kind of uh real time pricing model and prices were fluctuating up to five thousand dollars for a ticket um during that effective auction for his um seat. That's not very Bruce, is it? It's not very (laughs) Bruce, and he kind of pushed. Well-known Democrat
1: and man of the people and blue-collar hero, it's not really on. I mean, similarly, one of my early books on Amazon will occasionally hit a price of two thousand five hundred pounds, for which price I'll come round and read it in your house (laughs) if you really want to.
3: Rory, it's worth it's worth every it's worth every penny. Uh...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. (laughs) But the crucial the crucial thing with so the
6: the second type of market where I think it can be beneficial. And we see this already and why it's taken off in airlines and hotels is when you have a scarce amount of space, basically a fixed amount of space in the short term, and you want to allocate the goods to people who really value them are willing to pay more. Now, obviously, that's a, to an extent, that's controversial because you have the issue, well, what about poorer people who can't pay more or whatever? But the, the crucial dynamic effect here, I think, is that to the extent that it, this improves the profitability potential of the industry. We saw this with airlines as as they were able to engage in this dynamic pricing, as they were able to unbundle things like seat charges and the rest, improve their prospects for profitability. And that actually led to new entry into the sector, encouraged new firms, new investors to enter into the sector. And so people oppose quite often this sharply fluctuating pricing in the short term when they see what's happening on Ticketmaster. But to the extent that that encourages Bruce Springsteen or others to do more performances on the longer term, it encourages new entry of uh, airlines, it encourages new hotels to be built in an area because they perceive it's more profitable for them to do so, it actually has longer term beneficial consequences to consumers. So, I mean, I I agree with most of what Rory said. I think a lot of this is often badly marketed, and I think it's obvious to an extent people like a degree of certainty with certain things that they're going to pay for, especially essentials. But I do wonder the extent to which the general opposition, the kind of knee-jerk opposition to this, comes from just the fact that you know we haven't had a lot of experience in dealing with it in new sectors. And I wonder once these kind of competitive forces play out and prices become a bit more stable but fluctuate at certain times and people get more used to that, whether
1: they'll become much more accepting of it as they have done with airlines and hotels and Uber and the uh, incidentally it does two things doesn't it because as you said it brings new entrants into the market but it also perhaps less with taxis which you you either need one or you don't at any given moment but with airlines it encourages people to change their behavior to make more efficient use of available resources so for example i'm a bit of a night bird and british airways would never really in the old days would never really have a flight back from barcelona after 7pm on the assumption that you know if you didn't get back to Surbiton for dinner you know you'd probably die or something and then EasyJet of course were able to make much better use of their fleet by realizing you can actually run a flight at 11 o'clock and I look at the flight at 11 o'clock and go well it's Barcelona I can go out and have some fantastic food why the hell would I want to be in a rush to get home from Barcelona and I actually fly back into Gatwick at about one o'clock in the morning but I mean my behavior has been nudged effectively by the price and so they can make much more efficient use of their aircraft if they have a means. And by the way, I don't think it always has to be the price mechanism. I've always said to airlines, you could use your loyalty program to achieve the same thing. You know, you could say fly back from Barcelona on the 11 o'clock flight and you get double Abios points or whatever. They're, they've never done this and I keep telling them they're idiots. But there we go. So it doesn't have to be the price mechanism. You know, It can be free breakfast, if eh? you know, all that sort of stuff. But it is really, really good. Now, I, I agree with you that consumers consumers are wrong to be opposed generally but they're right to be long-term nervous in the sense that you know you could end up with an absurdity with differential pricing where you literally wealthy people have to pay poor people to shop for them online in order to get a reasonable price okay I and mean, you could end up with kind of nonsensical situations and so There is a a level of knowledge about the consumer, which I think it's considered to be unacceptable to use in your pricing. And this is where I'm conscious of the thing. I mean, one of the great things with flexible working, by the way, is if you have to go and visit a parent at the weekend, okay? Don't go as you used to go, go on Friday, come back Sunday night. Hotel or pub is really expensive. Go actually on Saturday, less traffic, come back Monday evening, your Sunday night in a hotel is typically really, really cheap because you get fewer. You don't get many business people. You don't get many leisure guests either. So you can game the system and just. You, I mean, I jokingly suggested starting a really, really bad public school, okay, where the educational standards were appalling. But the one benefit was that all the holidays were at really eccentric times of year, uh, so you could uh, actually get much cheaper flights with your kids. <laughs> and um, the the um. The point I'm making there is there is an element. I mean, first of all, it would make obvious sense, by the way, if uh, different parts of the country did stagger their school holidays. Yeah. Here's an interesting question. OK, one other way you can differentially price is effectively. OK, um, uh, one thing I support very much for hotels, they don't do it much, uh, is second room is half price. If you're okay, if you're a double earning couple with no kids, you're paying for one room out of two salaries. If you've got two kids, you're probably paying for two rooms out of one salary. Yeah, and so clever things that actually match effectively ability to pay in a form of price discrimination. Uh, you know, with, with with capacity would strike me as a pretty sensible. I mean, if you think about it, the KFC bargain bucket, McDonald's doesn't really have an equivalent. Okay, pizza places do, because, of course, an enormous pizza is not that much more expensive than a small one. The KFC bargain bucket basically says, if you're buying food for the family, we're going to charge you less per calorie. That's also, I think, a benign form of wealth redistribution. And it's it's definitely the benign form of price discrimination. The only thing that concerns me is if everybody does it, um, the segment of the population who have in many ways, the most cause on their finances and the least flexibility is once again working families with children at school. And there is a slight concern that people who can only do things on Saturday and Sunday and people who can only go on holiday in half term end up getting kind of disproportionately screwed. And that, you know, that is something we need, to, you know, we need to be slightly alert to. Now, from a purely economic point of view, uh, what you're doing is beautiful and indeed at the individual level of the business it's also beautiful if every business acts like this it becomes a bit problematic there's one there's one crucial point i want to make i think the key
6: one of the key points in your article though was that we need innovation in this area and i think there's there's a fear at the moment that you've got su- some of the consumer groups are kind of coming out and demanding that the cma the competition and markets authority sort of entrench our these conceptions of fairness into law and then have those determine what different entities are able to charge. And I think given the way that this has evolved, even in airlines and Uber and the like, yeah, I think that's very misguided to try and kind of entrench these ideas of fairness permanently, because as we've seen, innovation can lead to that changing quite quickly.
2: Thank you, Rory and Ryan. And finally, is a Guardian blind date the most effective way to find love? That's the question Lloyd Evans wanders and he writes about his experience of going on a Guardian blind date in this week's magazine. He joins us now alongside the journalist Cosme Landersman, whose dating columns I'm sure many listeners will remember. Lloyd, you start in your piece by mentioning that the last time you bought The Guardian, it cost 65p. So you're clearly not a regular reader. What was it that made you entrust your dating life to The Guardian?
0: For some reason, I always think that people uh, on the left are going to be a bit more sympathetic uh, towards me, and um, you know that was my sort of background. I was brought up in a sort of left-leaning household where we got the Guardian and the Observer, so maybe that feels like home to me in a funny way. But yeah, it's it's a question of sympathy. I thought that um, I thought somebody on on the with a left-wing perspective might uh, might be more um, more open to my uh, ideas and my sort of um, political outlook. But um, <clears throat> that was it's sort of wishful thinking in a way
2: and 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 tell us about the date how how did it go
0: um, well it was slightly complicated because the restaurant was hiding behind some skyscrapers in Vauxhall and uh, i was very late i was 35 minutes late so i was amazed that uh, that my date karen was was actually still there because i'd i'd have left after 10 minutes you know i'm very impatient with uh, with unpunctuality and um you know it was very nice uh, they 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 filled us with cocktails and wine and we we gabbled away. I mean, she was like me, late fifties, and we had plenty to talk about. Talked about kids and careers and stuff. And it's very easy actually on a date because I haven't been dating for about twenty years, and it's completely different. The landscape's completely different, so it's much much easier now because you've got so much more experience to share, and you can you can just you know move in and out of any topic you want. And um, it's it's a completely different thing um, from being in your late thirties when you're looking for a sort of long term partner. Um, and there are so many other things you need to worry about like what are her parents going to think of me you know um, where are we going to send the kids to school uh, what's my career going to be like in 15 years time now all those questions are now resolved and they don't really matter so instead of it being a kind of 500 piece jigsaw, it's now more like a five piece jigsaw, and you can fit the bits together very quickly and, and see what the picture is and there's much less responsibility so it's more fun actually dating at this age which is a big surprise to me,
3: Cosmo. I wonder, do you agree with that? If with with Lloyd's uh, argument that dating is a lot easier at this stage of life,
0: in,
7: in some ways it's easier. It's much easier in the sense that technology makes it easier, and technology acts as a buffer against the incredible amount of rejection you will sort of suffer in your dating world. In the old days, you had to call up a proper a, a woman and say, "Would you like to go have dinner with me?" And there was always that terrible pause where she would say that a yes or no. Now you can text and you can text a bunch of people. So I think technology has made it easier. But I think it's much harder to date and find relationships because people are overspoiled by choice. It's like a great big supermarket out there. And if one person doesn't immediately capture your interest, you just, you know, swipe and find and find somebody else. So in some ways, it's harder.
2: And Lloyd, have you tried other techniques for, for dating aside from The Guardian?
0: Uh, yes, I have. I, I've put an advert in Private Eye, which was very simple. It was uh, right wing bastard seeks mate.
2: <laughs> How did that go?
0: Well, no, no, nobody replied. Actually, I'm just remembering one woman did reply, and she said, "I'm 38 and very broad minded." So I replied and said, "Well, I'm 60 and very broad minded." But that was that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, although I wasn't really looking, I wasn't looking for somebody that age. It's funny, also being being the age I am now, Um, you know, the cliche is that the guy wants the girl who's half his age. But that makes you feel very old, I think. Now it's like talking to somebody at a party. If you're talking to somebody who's 20 years younger than you, you feel really elderly and slow and lacking in energy. If you're talking to somebody who's 20 years older than you, you you feel you feel much more kind of useful and so i i you know there's this, this cliché the guy who wants the younger girl i don't i can't i don't understand that that doesn't, it doesn't work for me anyway
3: cosmo have you ever been on a blind date like the sort of experience that lloyd writes about in his piece
7: yes i've had numerous blind dates and they all begin with great promise and they all end usually in dis- disaster or disappointment uh, the thing about blind dates is that you're, or if a friend sets you up on a blind date, they'll say, "Oh, you're going to love this person. You're going to really get on. You'll have a great time. She's so funny, so intelligent." You go there and you have absolutely nothing to talk about. So blind, what blind dates teach you is that those friends that you think really know you very well and what you like and your taste—no, they don't. They have—they're completely clueless. Have you ever tried the Guardian blind date? I no, I did the Guardian site. I did the Guardian dating app site when I was a dating correspondent, hmm. uh, and there was I met some interesting people, but no romance. But I like the way Lloyd did it in Private Eye. That's the old that's the old school way. It, in the old days, we called those Lonely Hearts column. <laughs> yeah. And the London, I think it was the London Review of Books was famous for its sort of day uh, a bit like Lloyd's comments. I think there was one famous one old cynical man seeks nymphomaniac woman for a beautiful relationship and he he, he found somebody. So I, I like I, I'm kind of nostalgic for those days.
0: I took out an advert in the Times Literary supplement, uh, which I don't read. And I, I met somebody through that and and actually we, we started dating and she was somewhat horrified to discover that I put an advert in a journal I never opened. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Just widening the prospect. That's nothing wrong with that.
2: And Lloyd, do you do you believe in the theory that opposites attract? I mean, you talk a bit in your piece about the subject of Brexit, and I mean, do you do you think you could end up with a Remainer, for instance?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, I don't think politics is so important that it actually acts as a um, uh, as a sort of uh, an instrument of impotence. I think um, one can uh, one one can make a connection with with anybody. I I don't really understand this idea that Brexit or politics has broken up relationships. You hear all these stories about I've lost so many friends because of Brexit. Well, they weren't really your friends were they? I mean, you can you can reach out and uh, and make common ground across uh, a political division, I think. And uh, the um but but uh, when I was talking about this woman I met through the Times literary supplement and uh, was was horrified that I read it. I sort of explained to it in my snobbish way. I said the thing is that I want to meet somebody uh, if, if I refer to my uh, professor Higgins, I want the person to understand immediately what I'm talking about. And if I say Pedsna, I don't want her to think that maybe that's an obscure East European beer. It's just a, a case of sort of finding a uh, common ground, common intellectual ground, sort of shared interests. and And so you're both sort of on the same page in terms of cultural references. So that's I mean, I am quite snobbish when it comes to dating. But I think if you you know, if you can't be snobbish when you're dating, then when can you be snobbish? <laughs> Cosme, what do you what do you think? Do you think uh
3: politics can get in the way of of? No, I of think romance? it's I
7: think it's an aphrodisiac. I find <laughs> when I'm talking to a sort of sexy <laughs> right wing woman, it's wow, that's a real turn on where some left aren't that excited, a bit too much like me, and I would to say right wing women generally are They are more liberated. They have this bad image that they're all uptight and, you know, puritanical, but it's
0: not true at all, I assure you. I was just reminded, actually, of uh, something that the the woman from the TLS said to me, uh, picking up on what Cosmo said. Um, While we were on our first date, in fact, we were sort of, we were back at her place, and she said to me, you're quite right-wing, aren't you? Take your clothes off. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that was was sort of my, uh, that was my... um, the reason for for trying to present myself as this uh, kind of right wing person, but I'm I'm kind of very very much um, I think I'm you know straight down the line I'm I'm pretty uh, straightforward kind of person in terms of politics I'm just a common sense kind of person I, I've got a very clear idea about what I want to do with my life and the things I can't be bothered doing and um, I mean in terms of in terms of the the pitch to people uh, yeah I'm very selfish and very narcissistic <laughs> and I want somebody who thinks I'm funny but they won't think I'm as funny as I think I am. Nobody's perfect, Lloyd. But I suggest to have,
7: including your pictures, the fact that you're passionate for the theatre. There's a certain type of women who love going to the theatre.
0: You'd, you'd be the perfect guy. Yeah, they do. Now, that's very interesting because when, when I meet a new person, they always say, oh, great, I can go to the theatre any time I want. And after the third or the fourth date of the theatre, they they just don't ask again. That's <laughs> not <laughs> There's so much rubbish out there. You know, they just think, oh, God, again. That is, uh, initially, that does seem like a really big uh, pull factor, but it declines very, very rapidly.
3: Thank you, Lloyd and Cosmo, and good luck, Lloyd. And if any listeners are interested in arranging a date with Lloyd, please email lloyd at spectator.co.uk. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore.
2: And I'm Laura Prendergast. And as ever, we do hope you'll join us again next week.